Hey, my name is Suhani, and this is my podcast, The Fem Stem Mythbusters. Regan Ralph is the founding president and CEO of the Fund for Global Human Rights. As a young women's ad- rights advocate, she embraced the power of human rights to challenge structural inequality and has worked alongside and in support of human rights movements ever since. Hi, Regan. It's really ha- nice to have you on my podcast. Thank you, Suhani. I'm very pleased to be here and to have a chance to talk to you. And today we are here to talk about the unfortunate overturning of Roe v. Wade and specifically discuss how um, a right to an abortion is so important for women, especially in terms of uh, pursuing education. So let's get into what Roe v. Wade is, some background. Okay. So um, Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973, and that was a case uh, in which a woman who was interested in terminating a pregnancy, tried to do it. She was living in the state of Texas. And um, I don't remember the exact restrictions in Texas, but essentially she was denied access to an abortion. And so she got the help of some lawyers to sue the state of Texas to um, try to gain access to abortion services. And um, she was denied access and ultimately appealed that decision all the way up to the Supreme Court, which then decided in 1973 that that had been wrong, that that it was wrong, that um, women should have a constitutionally recognized right to an abortion um, as a part of their right to privacy um, in making important personal decisions. For the plaintiff in the case, uh, Roe, who was um, actually a woman named Norma McCorvey, she actually had her baby and gave it up for adoption because the final outcome of the Supreme Court case was long after she had initially become pregnant. But it was at that point that the Supreme Court recognized that in the 14th Amendment, um, which respects people's right to liberty, among other things, and and says that the state cannot interfere with a person's right to liberty without due process of law, that embedded in that was a right to privacy, which built on a, a series of cases recognizing people's right to privacy, particularly in personal areas like controlling your reproductive life, um, and that embedded in that was a right to uh, for a woman to make a decision to have an abortion um, if she so t- desired, but, but it also limited that um, that right to the point it would uh, basically it said that women had the right to seek an abortion up until the point of viability of the fetus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, ever since then, it's been a point of controversy in this country uh, since even before this case, but especially after this became a precedent. And usually, the two sides are split up into um, what is known as pro-choice versus pro-life and the side that's pro-choice is kind of the side that supports abortion or this right to an abortion and I wanted to explain what that means because I feel like a lot of people are under the impression that that means um, people are pro-abortion which is not really the case it's more just that they're pro Um, the fact that women have a right to choose what they want to do with their body. And yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I, in some ways, I think the language of of pro-choice is a little unfortunate because it's Mm -hmm. a little hard for people to understand what that means. I would say it's, you know, pro-women's autonomy, um, Mm -hmm. the idea that women and women and, and girls lives are dramatically affected by, um, what happens in their reproductive lives. And, you know, I know I have a friend whose mother got married when she was a teenager and she had three children by the time she was 21. You know, that, that, significantly impacted her ability to pursue an education. She didn't. She was a high school graduate and nothing higher, um, which then in turn affected her ability to earn a living over the course of her life. Um, And she wound up being very dependent on her husband. And that was not a great situation um, because he was abusive. So, you know, the, um, the consequences of these decisions are profound. And I think a part of what 
the court recognized in Roe versus Wade and what has become so important to the the movement that calls itself often pro-choice, although not only, is that women should have access to that reproductive health care that they need. And abortion is an important part of that reproductive health care. Um, and it, you know, having access to that to that choice and to that health care can determine um, the quality and content of your life. Definitely. I mean, I really like the point that you made about how this one decision can completely alter a woman's life. I mean, now they have to factor in another human being's uh, well-being into their lives. And this can um, come in the way of many things, including their educational pursuits. And this kind of reminds me of one of the arguments uh, pro-lifers make, which is, oh, what if the baby could grow up to cure cancer? But the flip side of that is, what if the mother could find the cure to cancer? For some reason, we're always fixated on what the child could potentially be, whereas we should be focusing on the mother and what she could be and what having a baby would mean for her own educational pursuits. And not to mention that oftentimes, um, women who are seeking abortions aren't in the financial situation or in the mental state to have another child, which just isn't good for either parties, the baby or the mother in this situation. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I think it's a really important point to make. Um, the consequences of... Um, of having a baby are significant. The costs of having a baby are significant. And the vast majority of women who seek abortions as a part of their reproductive health care in the United States, for example, are already mothers. Um, mm -hmm. And they often will say, if you, you know, if you, if you read interviews with women who've chosen abortion after having already had children, they often say that it's, it's, tied to their ability to take care of the kids they already have and that they feel that additional um, pressures on their family would just make um, everything much more difficult for everybody. And I think, you know, one of the things that I find um, particularly problematic about, you know, the state of affairs that we now find ourselves in with the overturning of Roe versus Wade is that there's a devaluing of, of women um, as a general matter and a devaluing of women's ability to make profound and important decisions that affect their own lives. And if you look not only in the United States, but across the world, where women have abortion access to abortion as a part of their access to health care, um, they um, the women's educational levels are higher women's level of economic attainment is higher, women's ability to participate in the public and political lives of their country is higher. So the idea that we're talking about this as women versus babies, I think is a complete mischaracterization of what the issue is. This is really about respecting the fact that women have, you know, in life is challenging often and people have to make difficult decisions and people have to look out for themselves and they have to look out for their families. Um, and this is a choice that is appropriately in the hands of the women whose lives are directly affected. And where women have access to the full panoply of reproductive health care, they're better. They, they lead you know, lives that are, are fuller um, and uh, they are able to pursue the things that matter to them. Um, and, I, and I think that that's the, the idea that that's not a woman's decision is a statement about sort of how how people really see where women are um, in, in society and what their role should be. Um, and that's, that's part of what I find so discouraging about the decision that was just uh, handed down by the Supreme Court is that it doesn't really focus at all on the impact of women um, and, and talks about um, this as if it weren't going to drastically affect women's lives. Um, and, you know, something you said, Suhani, about... Um, you know, how, how, what does it mean to be pro-choice and what does it mean? I think it means to be pro-women um, and to be uh, respectful of women's ability to make decisions that uh, profoundly affect the, the direction of their lives. Yeah, I agree. I think you um, explained that really, really well. Um, it is sad. It feels like America is kind of working backwards, you know, like 
the I, I was actually doing some research on this and pretty much all industrialized countries have only made access to abortion more easier except for one other country and it's really interesting to see how the US which was once like you know a global powerhouse is now um moving backwards what does the overturning of Roe actually look like in the U.S.? Because I think there are several misconceptions about this. Um, it doesn't mean that abortion is banned nationwide. It means that each state has makes their own decision about their stance on abortion. However, in the U.S., almost half of states have already either banned abortions completely or put severe restrictions. Right. So what the court did when it overturned Roe versus Wade was basically say uh, the Constitution does not um, and never has um, respected the right of women to choose an abortion, that it was based on bad logic, bad legal reasoning. And the people who drafted the Constitution and the amendments to the Constitution never intended abortion to be protected. Um, I think you can argue the merits of the case, and I certainly would, but you asked what the consequences are. And the consequences are, as you said, that what this does, because now there's no federally recognized right um, protecting a woman's right to choose abortion care, Instead, what happens is it gets kicked to the states to decide. Um, and as you pointed out, there are a number of states across the country that had what they call trigger laws, which meant that the minute that Roe versus Wade was overturned or the minute that the constitutional right to abortion was um, thrown out, that they, laws would immediately go into effect restricting access to abortion. Um, some, of those, some of those bans are complete and total outright bans. Some of them uh, ban all abortion except when it is uh, uh, at risk, the, the, there's a risk to the life of the mother. Um, and in some cases, there are exceptions that allow people to seek abortions if the pregnancy is a consequence of rape or incest. Um, but so, yes, there are, there are states right now that have, um, in, have started to implement laws um, that ban um, or greatly restrict women's access to abortion. And it's being fought. Um, at the state level now in the courts, in some instances, I know in Louisiana, um, a, there is a there was a trigger law that went into effect almost immediately. Courts mm -hmm. refused to, to um, uphold that and told clinics they could continue to provide abortion services. That was challenged again and taken up to another level. So this, this is going to be fought um, in states and probably in federal courts for years to come. Um, this is, by the way, Suhani, the first time that the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutionally recognized right. The Supreme Court has expanded the recognition of rights over the course of the 200 plus years of American history. It has, um, in some instances, overturned precedents that were uh, bad law because they restricted the rights of people, um, but it has never before overturned a, a, a previous holding that in a way that takes away the constitutionally understood rights of half of the population. So what that means is now w whether you have access to this part of your health care depends on where you live and how much money you have. Um, and there will be states, and there, there are a number of states like New York and California that have already said that they will um, strengthen the protection so that people can continue to access abortion care. But there are states like Kansas, which happens to be where I am from, that has its Kansas has a constitutionally a state constitutionally right recognized right to an abortion, which you would think would be good news. But um, unfortunately, the, there, there are people in Kansas right now lobbying hard to change that law and in fact to deny women access to abortion in the state. So it's going to be fought out in, in the court system, in state legislatures, and across the country um, for, for, you know, for years to come. And um, the, 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 the reality is that the majority of Americans support women's access to abortion. The majority of people recognize that this is an important part of mm -hmm. women's health care and that it, should, it, it is properly decided by women. Um, but that's not what you're seeing at the state legislative level. What you're seeing is the state legislatures who are very eager to uh, restrict this right, um, regardless of what the people of their state want. Yeah, and th that's, that's really interesting, especially about the Supreme Court. Um, 
I did not know that this this is the first time that they're actually like actively taking away right. And I also wanted to highlight one of the other points that you made where it comes down to where you live and how much money you make. I, this once again plays into the inequality that we face in America, not just like gender inequality. I'm talking about racial socioeconomic um, inequality. For instance, I found this article that said that banning abortion will have a devastating um, consequence, will have devastating consequences, especially for young women of color, um, which, you know, it's sad that this deepens that divide too. That's terrible. I mean, we have obviously, um, as you pointed out, you know, profound socioeconomic inequalities in this country, often because of the history of racism Mm -hmm. um, in the United States, those socioeconomic disadvantages correlate with race. And the people who will continue to have access to abortion care are people who can afford to travel um, and people who can afford to pay private providers. Um, For people who have fewer resources, it's gonna be much harder for them to get access to abortion. So they are much more likely to have babies that they can't afford um, and to be in difficult circumstances as a consequence. Um, And it's also, you know, something else to, uh, one of the the myths that um, the, the side that is trying to seek the banning of abortions likes to put out there is that um, abortions are dangerous. Um, and that's actually not true. If abortion is legal um, and it is provide, you know, if you get an abortion by a, um, a trained abortion provider, abortion is much safer than delivering a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and pregnancy is actually one of the, you know, in a country like this one with advanced state of healthcare and a relatively high standard of living, pregnancy is one of the most dangerous things a woman does during the course of her life um, mm-hmm. because there are, you know, lots of different um, health complications that can arise. You know, we hope that that doesn't happen, but of course it does happen. And, um, often, you know, to people of all ages and all kinds. And so the idea that abortion is dangerous is actually false. Um, pregnancy um, can be dangerous, and which is not to say that people, I mean, I have a child. I'm very happy to have a child. Yeah. You know, my mother had two children. Like, you know, have, having kids is, is great yeah. when you want them mm-hmm. um, uh, and when you have access to high quality health care. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing thing that I've been hearing about. I haven't done as much research into it, but um, I've heard that in some states where there's like a total ban to an abortion, um, oftentimes women who do have health complications with their pregnancy are at risk because they won't be, uh, they won't have access to an abortion, even if it's necessary um, for them to like stay alive. So... Yeah, it depends on what kind of laws you find that states ultimately pass. Um, one of the things that um, the the movement to ban abortions says is that they are they are they are not interested in punishing women. Um, but I you shouldn't believe mm-hmm. that because in fact some of the laws that are being recommended or passed do criminalize women for seeking abortion. They do criminalize physicians for providing abortions, which means that if you are a woman with a high-risk pregnancy and um, you're concerned enough about your health that you want to seek an abortion, you may find that doctors aren't willing to perform that procedure for you because they're afraid of being prosecuted. Um, Similarly, um, I was listening to another podcast recently um, in which somebody, a, a doctor was saying that one of the disconcerting things about the kinds of laws that states are passing, especially those that criminalize women who for seeking an abortion, is that it is almost impossible medically to tell the difference between um, a situation where a woman has had an abortion versus a situation where she has had a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. And so if you can't tell the difference medically by examining a woman or looking at you know, the consequences to her health or her body, then that means that women who miscarry are at risk of criminal prosecution. And in fact, um, I, you know, I work for uh, an organization that supports women's rights activism globally, and one of the countries in which we work is El Salvador. El Salvador has a complete ban on abortion, and women there are and have been historically prosecuted for murder when they have obstetric emergencies and they miscarry. Um, And there was actually a case in the past couple of years where a woman who had had a miscarriage late in her pregnancy was sentenced to 30 years um, for murder. 
um, and imprisoned. She died two years after she was imprisoned because she developed cancer and did not have access to the kind of healthcare, you know, diagnosis and and the treatment that she needed. Um, and people pursued her case up to the level of something called the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, which said that actually El Salvador is wrong and that, that prosecuting women for this is inconsistent with human rights protections and that um, El Salvador should recognize that, you know, should stop this practice um, and recognize uh, more expansively a woman's right to seek abortion care. Um, so that's, you know, that's the risk that we run in a situation where, you know, the sort of bland assurances that it's all going to be okay, that this isn't about not liking women, that this is about wanting to protect life. It's just based on everything that we've seen about the kinds of laws people want to get passed and the kinds of consequences that states are willing to pursue. That's not true. Um, this will have serious consequences for the lives of women. It will limit, limit women's opportunities. You know, in the 50 years, so I was a little girl when Roe versus Wade was decided. Um, when I was a little girl, Suhani, jobs were advertised in the newspaper based on sex. So that there were the jobs that were advertised for men and that there were the jobs that were advertised for women. Um, there were, you know, schools that women couldn't go to. There were subjects that women couldn't pursue. Um, and th th this isn't because of the lack of access to abortion, but it's all tied to a view of women and women's role in society, which has changed profoundly in the past 50 years. And women having the ability to control the outcome of their sexual and reproductive lives is a big part of that. Um, and one of the, and one of the thing, another myth that, um, people like to talk about when they talk about abortion is that if abortion is available, more people get abortions and particularly people are worried about teenagers. Well, the reality is that the, the rate, rates of abortion in general have gone down significantly in the past 30 or 40 years, and they have particularly gone down amongst teenagers. Um, and that's partially because teenagers use contraception more, um, and so they have they are exercising control over their sexual and reproductive lives in that way. But it's also because... Um, uh, it's also because apparently because kids are having less sex, which may be a result of sex education or not, but, but it's a, it's a, a one of those scary scenarios that they like to throw out there that, you know, when you dig underneath it, it just isn't true. Yeah. Actually speaking of sex education, just one of the major problems I think that come with this whole pro-choice versus pro-life uh, war, I would like to call it, is the misinformation that spread. I mean, I think so far throughout this episode, we've already listed like five or six misconceptions or myths that uh, relate to this idea. And another thing is, um, myth, I guess, that kind of relates to that is that overturning Roe will decrease the number of abortions, which isn't necessarily true. Um, as you said, the number of abortions has already decreased with the access to abortion, which is a trend you don't, you haven't just seen in the U.S. but um, across the world. But right. the problem is that unsafe abortions, where the lives of the women seeking them is um, more at risk. Yeah, those will go up. Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, that's all of the evidence suggests that, that you're exactly right, that ac that people will get abortions, whether abortion is legal or mm -hmm. not. Um, what increases when you make abortion illegal is unsafe abortion. And I think one of the moments when I think about why I became a women's rights activist, one of the moments um, that I always think about was, so like I, I mentioned, you know, I was... Um, seven years old when Roe versus Wade was decided. Mm -hmm. And my mother used to subscribe to a feminist magazine called Ms. Magazine, which is still around. Oh, I've heard of that. And when I was um, probably seven, because I think it was right around the time that Roe was being argued in the Supreme Court, that the magazine ran an, um, an edition with a picture on the cover of a woman who had been abandoned by an illegal abortion provider on the table where he had performed the abortion and she had bled to death. And it was a picture of her um, after the procedure when somebody found her in that situation. Um, she hemorrhaged um, during the procedure and he um, ran and left her there to die. 
And I remember seeing that and thinking it was the most devastating thing I'd ever seen in my life because she looked so vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You know, she had trusted her health um, and her well-being to this back alley abortion provider who wasn't qualified to provide the care, who was just interested in the money to be made off of it. And she died as a consequence. And those are the kinds of risks that women, that's, that's how important it is for women to have this kind of choice is that they will take that kind of risk in order to exercise that kind of choice. Um, and, you know, I, I know I said a minute ago that um, abortion isn't dangerous. Um, it isn't nearly as significant in terms of the possible health outcomes as pregnancy often is. That example that I just gave you, though, is about unsafe abortion. Mm -hmm. It's about what happens when women are forced to go to people who aren't actually qualified to provide them with that care um, because they don't have any other alternative. I think it's really sad that this can come down to a life or death scenario for a woman and as you said, this goes back to women's equality. I'm going to read a quote from a Supreme Court decision, Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey from 1992. The ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. Another quote is, from Justice Harry Blackman, the author of Roe, and he called the decision a step that had to be taken as we go down the road towards the full emancipation of women. Not to mention that this ability to make personal health care decisions has also enabled women to pursue educational and employment opportunities. In fact, a 2015 um, research paper at NIH concluded that ensuring women can have a wanted abortion enables them to maintain a positive future outlook and achieve their aspirational plans. It's sad that we don't think that some people don't see this as a women's right issue. I think that's one of the points that we've tried to make in this episode, which is just that different mindset, you know, like, yeah. For many pro-lifers, like the woman isn't even a factor, I guess. In yeah, yeah. No, I, th I, I mean, I think um, I, you know, I've heard people from the so-called pro-life movement talk, you know, at great length about their their cause, and they never talk about women mm -hmm. as autonomous human beings. And I, um, I can't help but feel disrespected when I listen to those people talk because I feel like I'm invisible. Um, and I feel like all the other women um, that are in this country who count on being able to make those kinds of choices for themselves, they count on, you know, having justice and having access to appropriate medical care, that they're invisible to those people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that Oh, something that you just said sparked a thought of, of mine. Um, you know, just thinking about, you know, people, so people, people have sex. We all know that. Um, and, and one of the possible consequences of having sex is that uh, somebody gets pregnant and, um, you know, that could be for a whole bunch of reasons. It could, and, and, you know, that, and it can be a surprise, um, and it can be an unwelcome surprise. And if you are in a situation where you don't have any choice about whether you have a baby or not, then it does interrupt your life. If you are forced to carry a pregnancy to term, it can significantly affect your ability to continue with your education or your ability to get certain kinds of jobs, um, or to lift yourself out of poverty, if that's what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Um, so I do, I do think that it is, you know, I, I said something similar to this before, but I think that it is not a coincidence that women's, um, you know, educational achievement, the women's representation in professional schools, women's um, participation and representation in higher, ever higher levels of, of you know, professional achievement, their, their presence in the political lives of their communities, all of those things have increased in exactly the same time frame that women have had access to abortion. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's not a cause, it's not a causal thing necessarily. It's not because I have access to abortion, I was able to get a good education and a good job. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that it's, as you suggested, it's a part of the range of things that you need to have access to in, a, in order to be able to set the course of your own life as much as possible. Yeah, like it's 
not causation, it's correlation. You know, it, it was just another, I guess, indication that we were moving towards a more equal, more um, opportunistic, I guess, country for women, which previously wasn't the case. As you mentioned, you know, it's a completely different country from when you were a little girl and quite, it was quite blatant, I guess, sexism, right, in society. Um, yeah. So. Yes, in fact, I don't know if you know this, but the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is known primarily for, um, as an outgrowth of the civil rights movement, um, which was, you know, when African-Americans were demanding equal rights and an end to segregation, um, the, the, the senators who opposed that piece of legislation decided that they would um, undermine its chances of passing by including sex as one of the grounds on which discrimination would not be tolerated, um, because they believe that if you said you can't discriminate against women, nobody would want to pass that legislation. They did pass that legislation anyway, and that's why we have Title VII, um, which is prohibits um, racial and sex discrimination in the workplace. Mm -hmm. It's why we have Title IX, which gave us opportunity at, in, in schools um, and in sports. So, um, but yeah, the, the idea that it should be illegal to discriminate against women on the basis of sex was considered laughable by many people in this country in the 1960s, as recently as in the 1960s. Um, and it's not like once they passed the legislation, sexism ended. Mm -hmm. So women continue to fight um, unequal treatment. Um, and obviously they're going to be fighting it even more now that one of their fundamentally, um, one of the rights that they took, um, that they understood to be fundamentally guaranteed by our constitution has, they've now been told that that's not true. Yeah. And just as education and frankly, like people's lives are at risk. I've heard that, uh, sometimes the, their privacy is also at risk. Like our privacy. I've seen New York times articles that that are that have warnings that are like oh if you live in a state where abortion is banned be careful of what you search up because um people might track you or use that to incriminate you which is really scary and you wonder how that's possible after we have you know um constitutional rights or the constitutional right to an amend uh to privacy i believe it's yeah. amendment uh 14? 14. Yeah. Okay. Yep. The right to privacy. Well, the, I mean, the, the, the part of the rationale behind Roe versus Wade was the right to privacy mm, um, and that it was, it was, um, you know, that was a private decision that a woman should be able to make. And interestingly, the right to privacy, which is a part of what, um, well, this, it's debatable what the, what the Supreme Court actually said about mm -hmm. it um, in Dobbs, the Dobbs case that just came down overturning Roe versus Wade. But um, the right to privacy was the basis in the case called Griswold versus Connecticut in the 60s, mm -hmm. in, which, in which the right to get access to contraception was recognized. So first, married people need sued to be able to get access to contraception. And then they said it's okay for married people to get access to contraception based on the right to privacy. And then non-married people sued to be able to get access to contraception. Well, to... to particularly contraception that women can use because men have always been able to purchase condoms, you know, in the convenience store or the grocery store or whatever. Um, and then, um, and so that was, that, that was a line of cases that started developing the idea of this right to privacy and the, and the right to privacy was used, um, as a basis for respecting, um, same sex marriage, same sex marriage as well. So, uh, one of the concerns that, uh, after the Dobbs case is that a lot of these other rights that have been, um, recognized by the court over the decades since the Roe versus Wade was decided will also be um, lost um, when the Supreme Court is given an opportunity to rule. And in fact, Justice Thomas explicitly said, it's time to overturn these cases. Mm -hmm. They do, will not stand based on the logic of the majority opinion. Now, in the majority opinion, they said, this is only about abortion. Abortion is special. We're not, we're not deciding anything else. But the logic of the case could very easily be applied to these other rights that have been respected. So yeah, people are right to be worried. Um, this is a Supreme Court that has a uh, a very deeply political agenda, and it is hostile to the rights of those of us um, who have been working hard to build respect for our rights over the course of the past 50 years and longer. Yeah, that's 
it's it's really interesting to see especially um a perspective of someone who was i guess alive like during that time before pre row and like see post row and then post overturning of row too mm-hmm. so yeah, it's, I mean, I guess the sad lesson is that you can't take anything for granted. Mm. Um, and, you know, I grew up in a time when the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement and the anti-war movements, those were all, it just, you know, people movements made change happen mm. and it made the world a better place and it gave more people opportunity. And that just felt like we were on an upswing. Um, and obviously change is not linear uh, and there can be setbacks mm. and these issues are deeply politicized in our country, and that means they will be contentious and fought over, um, you know, long after I'm not around to talk about it anymore. That's actually a really good point. I've actually thought about this and wondered whether our country's uh, bipartisanship plays a role in this debate. I feel like a lot of political issues are, um, or at least both parties, like Democrats and Republicans, take uh, polar opposite stances on different issues. For example, gun control. Um, For some reason, this idea that we should have gun control is uh, usually the side of Democrats, whereas anti-gun control is usually the side of Republicans. And I feel like this this plays into um, a lot of misinformation because people who feel like they identify with one of those sides will automatically side with the the beliefs of others without fully considering their own opinions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think it's it's really interesting to see how people define conservative and liberal these days mm-hmm. because that has also changed. Um, and interestingly, if you look at the history of abortion rights, for example, um, the Republican Party uh, had a very strong libertarian element um, to it until probably the early to mid 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and libertarians think that the government shouldn't be minding your business. It's a particular form of conservatism. Um, and so the Republican Party was not pro life. Um, and it, that these things change over time, and par, and it's a it, it it's a complicated set of reasons for why they change over time. I think it has to do with you know political dynamics in our country. It also has to do with money, and the fact that people with a lot of money help determine who gets elected in our country. Um, and the Supreme Court also decided a case called Citizens versus United, which allowed corporations and uh, to do um, significant political spending, which changes again where the money comes from that supports political elections. So if 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 you are um, you know the cons- if you look at the the conservatives um, or certain conservatives, I should say, funded political candidates over a period of decades with the goal of changing the nature of what it meant to be a Republican. Um, and so they only supported Republicans of certain agendas. So whether it's the pro-life movement or the pro-gun movement or whatever pro-gun rights movement, whatever it is, they fund um, politicians who are interested in interpreting the laws in the ways that they want them to be interpreted. So, I mean, you mentioned guns, for example. I think it's very debatable that the Second Amendment, as it has been interpreted by the current Supreme Court, is actually consistent with the intent of the founders or the protections of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the Supreme Court didn't look at it that way um, until very recently after extensive lobbying, lobbying by the National Rifle Association. So the nature of the politics in this country um, really has a lot to do with things like money and who's in office and how they get into office. And if if you are elected in part because you get a lot of financial support from pro-life forces, then you're not going to change the way you look at it. So I think that, and I also think we are in a time of incredible hostility between the parties and between people of different belief systems, which is really sad. Like you should be able to have a difference of opinion without um, believing that the person who disagrees with you is your enemy. And I think that 
also comes from the escalating rhetoric um, on different sides of issues, right? And the fact that people, because of because of the internet and people's activity online, they can be exist in a world where they only get information from people that see things in a certain way, and those people can completely shape the way they see issues. So whether you're talking about immigration or abortion rights or gun rights or any of these issues that are so politicized in our country right now, um, many people who feel very strongly about these issues only hear from people who look at them a certain way and reinforce their worldview that that is the right way to see things and reinforce the idea that people on the other side are bad. And how do you have civil conversation when that's the, that when that's the way people are entering um, issues that are, you know, sort of deeply emotional um, and deeply political. So um yeah, it's it it's cause for concern because the, if these things are going to get worked out in legislatures, what is that going to look like if people on others on on the different sides of the issues treat each other like the enemy? Yeah, this is an interesting uh, discussion because I've actually had conversations with my friends about um, what it is that actually drives people who make national level decisions, such as our representatives, to have certain beliefs and we came to the conclusion that it's money you know sponsorships uh, which corporations are spending are sponsoring certain candidates to have certain beliefs and we we came to this conclusion because you know I don't really buy that these congressmen and supreme court justices are really interested in saving the lives of babies because if that were the case, you know, they'd be working on um, fixing the foster system and providing financial aid to families who need it to actually take care of the babies. So we were, we were thinking it was money. And then also um, social media, you know, that plays a big role in the spread of information. And it's great, you know, having a connected world. However, it's also the spread of misinformation that, um, as you said, it fuels extreme beliefs and it stops people from having civil, dis uh, civil debates and conversations without, as you said, seeing the other person as an enemy or them attacking you as a person. And I have a question for you. This one might be kind of controversial, but do you think if um, men were in our position and we were discussing their right to, say, an abortion, uh, if this would even be a discussion and whether something like the overturning of Roe v. Wade would even happen? <laughs> well, given the conversation that we've already had about the um persistence of sexism um i think what i'm gonna i'm gonna reframe your question and say do i think that if men's lives were hung on their ability to access a certain healthcare service if it would be available i think they would make sure that it was available because that is what people who have power and autonomy over their lives do. They get access to the things that give them control over their lives in ways that matter. Um, and and so, yeah, if, if men were the ones getting pregnant and everything else being equal in our society, I don't think it would be a question um, because it would be intolerable to them that they would lose control over their lives because of something that was um, unexpected or, um, you know, otherwise just undesired mm -hmm. so it feels like really the only the i want to i don't want to say this but i feel like i have to but the only way to make i guess permanent change for things such as like women's right is for people to get into power who have that ideology right to be the ones well, who are rich well i mean <laughs> 
there, there are different ways to think about it. You could say, yes, like we should get, find all the people who care about abortion rights and get them to contribute to candidates who um, will help respect and promote those rights. But I think there's, I think there's another way to think about it, which is about people power. Mm -hmm. I mean, I go back to the lessons that I learned growing up in the sixties and seventies that people power can make a difference. Now, sometimes it makes a difference in a way that creates chaos. I mean, just in the past couple of days, the government of Sri Lanka has been thrown out of power because of people taking to the streets um, because of inflation and lack of access to services and everything like that. And I think that um, that that's a little disconcerting to see that, um, you know, the kind of chaotic situation that is, is, is happening. But I also think it's a warning um, and a wake up call to people that when you, when you, you know, the government of Sri Lanka was arguably also incredibly corrupt and the people who were in charge were, you know, make, making a lot of money and not taking care of the needs of their population. Um, so people took to the streets and they got rid of them. And I think there is something in, um, and this has happened over and over again in history, that when people are in a situation that is intolerable, eventually they take to the streets. And sometimes those demonstrations and the persistence of people power actually makes change possible for the better. And so you know, right now we have a system that is deeply, deeply affected by where big money goes. Um, and it is, I think, really compromising um, the quality of our political life. But I also think that if people come together um, and work uh, collaboratively, whether it's in demonstrations or figuring out ways to solve the problems um, and getting active themselves, that can change things. And I think this is a... I see in some ways what has happened here as um, a wake-up call, and I, I actually think this is true in our society more broadly. We cannot take our rights for granted. I think a lot of Americans think that you know this is the one of the oldest democracies in the world, and you know we have a constitution and a bill of rights, and all of these things are settled and protected. And and we know now that that's not true. Um, and so we need to be actively fighting to to maintain and secure our rights uh, always, uh, not taking them for granted. And so that means you know for you and for the people who are listening to this podcast, if you care about something, be active on it. You know, I think it's great that you're doing this podcast to, to raise issues and have conversations with people about things that matter to you and your peers. And I, you know, I hope that you and other young people will get involved, you know, be on in, in, um, city councils or run for office or take on leadership roles at hospitals or, you know, help run campaigns for people who deserve to be in office. I mean, there are a lot of different ways to get involved. And I think that the, fu the future of all of us rests on people's willingness to, to, to invest in the things that they care about. Yeah. So what, what would you recommend for kids like us, especially like ones who you know, like I, I haven't been as involved in student government and that kind of stuff. I did a little bit in like middle school, um, that kind of stuff. But like I'm interested in trying to make a difference. Um, I joined the ACLU texting chain thing. I was like, maybe yeah. that's maybe that's a start. I don't know. I was like angry and I was yeah, trying I to find. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. No, no. It's, um, I, it's important for you to get that thought out there because I think that that's exactly the right thing. It's like, this is upsetting to me and I'm not just going to sit here and feel angry. I'm going to do something about it. And I think the first thing for everybody to do is to get informed. So, you know, by joining the ACLU, you're going to learn about, um, about things that are going on. Um, we have a program at my organization um, called D Digital Rights Activists. And they, it's a network of people who, when things are going on and when positive and or negative developments occur, we spread the word through our digital rights activist network. They share it on social media and that way more and more people learn about it. So I think the first thing to do is to, to, to get involved um, is to is to learn what's going on and to educate ourselves about what are the issues, what are the challenges, what are the opportunities, and then figure out ways to get involved. I mean, student government is great, but when you go off to college, um, or are living in a community. There are so many different things that you can do. I mean, when I was um, in college and law school, I had friends who were escorts at clinics uh, for women who were um, going into healthcare clinics, often to seek abortion services because the demonstrators were often outside. And so they had people who would protect them as they went into the clinic to get care. Um, 
uh, and those people, you know, they're trained. They are they work with organizations and networks of volunteers uh, so that they the 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 point is not to challenge the demonstrators, but to ensure the women can safely access the care that they're seeking. Um, there are people organizing to make sure that women that the information is out there about where you can get reproductive comprehensive reproductive health care, including abortion services. There are people who are creating funds um, to help women who don't have the money to travel get to get access to abortion care. So there are a lot of different specific things that people are doing on the issue that you and I are talking about today. But I think more broadly, there are different ways to get involved. I mean, when my son was in high school, he he was one of the student representatives on the city council. You know, he didn't change policy, but he learned a lot about city government and the way that that works. Um, and then he became active in politics and camp- works on campaigns for political candidates um, because he cares about the issues and because he wants people elected who he hopes will change the world. So I, I think there are a lot of different ways, and it's also about asking questions. You know, when you work when you're working in a work environment, does your employer provide support the access um, of the people who work to it work um, at the at its company to contraception to comprehensive reproductive health care do does your insurance cover those services why or why not Um, so being an informed citizen and standing up for our rights and then connecting to other people who are concerned about the same things because i really do think that when 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 we want to make change we the more of us who are are um, connected and and seeking that change and working toward that change in all kinds of different ways the greater our chances of success that that gives kind of hope you know because after hearing about it I kind of felt like hopeless I guess or like helpless you know it's it's like it was shocking I mean for the entire country world dare I say um that they made this decision I remember hearing about it at the beginning of summer like when they leaked the draft and I was I was like okay no no way and then one morning my friend texted me in the middle of our conversation she was like oh my god I just got a notification um that they overturned Roe v Wade and I was like I didn't believe her at first I was like no way no way they did that then I went online I was like oh my god so so I'm glad that there are ways that we can make a difference and I hope to get involved and spread the word about how others can as well um so i guess we should kind of start wrapping up this episode yeah no i i hear you and i feel the discouragement myself um what i would say is that you said this country doesn't value you or or our women and girls and i would say some in this country Mm -hmm. are making decisions that um disadvantage women and girls but there are many many people Um, who are outraged about this. And, you know, there are many, many people who have made it their life's work to change what the possibilities are for women and girls of all colors, of all statuses, um, of all sexualities, like all of the things that are real people's lives. There are thousands, if not millions of people who respect and value those lives. And I think the challenge for those of us who feel that way now is to figure out a way to stand up for the things that matter to us, even though there are a lot of people in power right now who are prepared to take them away. Yeah, well, thank you so much for um, joining me as a guest star for on my podcast. <laughs> So, honey, it was really a pleasure talking with you. I'm sorry that what brought us together was um, overarchingly bad news um, for the women of America, but I hope that I I will see you um, in the future, um, both accomplishing the things you want to accomplish um, and being a part of making the kind of change that will encourage people, not discourage them. Thank you. 